Hello, and welcome to another episode of Down the Hatch, the Swallowing Podcast. As many of you know, Dr. Alicia Vos and I co-host this podcast, and the dialogue is frequently about SLP practice from the perspective of SLPs and of other medical professionals. But this episode is the first of its kind because we are talking to an individual named Jim who has been living with swallowing problems. I want to encourage all SLPs who are listening to try to put their professional degrees aside for the next hour to really appreciate Jim's experience as if they too are a patient or a caregiver of someone with swallowing difficulties. Jim is very candid and we applaud him for sharing. But most importantly, we ask everyone who is listening to stay the course. Stick with us until the end because there are some valuable gems that will really round out this conversation. Finally, this is the first episode where each of us is in a different part of the country, and admittedly, the sound quality is not as clear as I'd like it to be. Nevertheless, the content is especially salient this holiday season, as friends and loved ones incorporate mealtimes into celebrations and fellowship. Enjoy! Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another Down the Hatch podcast. We have a guest today, but I'll start out by saying that it is the holiday time. It, You guys, we're somewhere between Thanksgiving and Christmas, so there's a whole lot of eating happening. And um, I was thinking about a lot of the patients that we deal with and how great it would be to have a patient perspective in a podcast, which we have not yet had so, um, obviously, your hosts are Alicia Vos and I am Ianessa Humbert. This is Down the Hatch, the Swallowing Podcast, and we have a special guest named Jim. And so, this, this may be the ultimate expert rant. <laughs> this might be the ultimate expert rant for real. So, Jim, do you mind introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about what you do? Um, anything you want to share with the listening audience? I'm um, from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm a 58-year-old male, um, and I apologize in advance because you know it'll take a little bit of clearing, so you'll hear me cough a little bit. I work for ADP. I work from home. That'll become important later on, talking about the the impact of of dysphagia. Um, I suffered a stroke uh, in April of 2016, and that led to my swallowing difficulties. Is dysphagia the only thing you're kind of left with, really, after that stroke? Um, no. To be, um, I, I still have the symptoms of Wahlberger syndrome. Wahlberger. It doesn't make me dance any better, but uh, <laughs> it does make um, like the uh, left side or the right side of the face has a little bit of lacking, a little bit of feeling. The left side of the body, the right side of the face, the left side of the body. <clears throat> Doesn't really have any sensation okay. to um, the heat and a little bit of balance. Um, I think I notice the balance more, the listing more when I walk. You know, the dysphagia is the um, the hidden gem and the hidden result of a stroke. 
Huh. What do you mean by hidden gem? Um, by looking at me, you wouldn't know that I suffer from it. Um, you know, I'm walk, walking into a store. Um, the biggest, the biggest result, it's a, it's a really a hidden, hidden disease. Not disease, um, a hidden um, symptom. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Alicia, did you want to ask a question or should I continue? Yeah, I, I was curious, Jim, if I think what's, what's interesting and unique about your about your situation in your case is that um, did they ever find out really why you had a stroke? Because if I recall, I mean, you're a you're a healthy guy. You travel. You it, it seems like the stroke really kind of truly came out of nowhere for you. Um, I, I think if I remember, you were traveling back from a vacation in the Caribbean or something like yes. that. Yes. Um, but it didn't happen in St. Thomas. But there's probably worse places to be stuck at. Um, the neurologist said it was it was more uh, bad luck. Yeah. The um, because about a year later after the stroke, they ran a series of tests on me. I wasn't likely to suffer another stroke. Downside is they didn't diagnose it as a stroke right away. Um, <clears throat> so, Jim, just so I'm clear, is the bad luck the issue that when you had the stroke, they didn't recognize it as a stroke for several days, even though you had a brainstem stroke? If I recall, the, I remember you were telling us before that you'd had a, a CAT scan and they didn't recognize a stroke. And then you elected to leave the hospital and go to someplace else where they finally did an MRI and discovered you'd had a brainstem stroke. So you'd had a stroke where brain cells were dying for a few days before it was discovered. Is that right? Yes, that, 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 that is right. The, uh, I would probably say like a day and a half before because I thought I had food poisoning, and they kind of believe that. You always hear about the um, <clears throat> how to diagnose the stroke, the tongue, the face, and and none of that was done for me. I didn't voluntarily leave. They they transported me from Charlotte up to Raleigh. I had the MRI done there, and they could pinpoint the stroke. And what I was doing down there, I was aspirating. Okay. So um, you, you, okay, you came to have swallowing problems from a stroke. Um, your stroke wasn't identified quickly enough so that they could start to mitigate, mitigate some of the effects of the stroke. You went to right. another institution. They identified that you had a stroke. Early on, people didn't ask you to do anything with your tongue, your face, to sort of get a sense of what um, head and neck structure seemed to be impacted. And you were aspirating this whole time and had some respiratory issues and uh, pneumonia early on. Is that right? Correct. So how were your swallowing problems described to you when they when you finally got to the point where someone was like, this person has had a brainstem stroke. This person is probably a high risk of having swallowing problems. Do you remember how your swallowing problems were described to you? I don't think they ever were, um, you know, specifically because the, uh, the unit I was in in the hospital, they were trying to keep me alive. So when I got shipped up 
to afford a start to physical therapy, um, that's when I noticed the NPO sign on my doorway. That's wait. That's when you noticed the NPO sign on your doorway. You said, "Is that right?" Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's when I was informed that I couldn't take anything orally, um, you know, food or, or water. Then it was described to me that um, the swallowing difficulties is associated with the stroke, and chances are that would clear up on its own. And so, you know, so you don't think about it, you know, it's a pain in the butt, but, um, you know, but they tell me it's going to clear up. Okay. So when it doesn't, when they, now I had a trach in me, the trach could be causing the pressure problem. So when they move the trach, that I should, I should regain my, the ability to swallow. Well, that didn't happen. Okay. So the only, in the hospital, the only studies they could do were the fee studies. Fees, you said? Yes. Okay, okay. Which, to, to me, it's, they're pretty useless. Okay, why do you say that as a patient? I'm interested in that patient um, perspective. Because they don't, one of the things, they don't show you anything except the top down. Okay. But the full working, the um, SLPs will always point to the chart. I'm sure you all have it. You know, it's probably hanging prominently up there, all the parts of the throat, uh -huh. the tongue, the swallow. The chart, you know, like the pictures on the wall. That doesn't show you anything. It shows the puddling. Uh -huh. It would show the, um, the puddling right there. Yeah. On how much was going down or where it was going. Okay. So let me ask you a question. You're saying whenever a speech pathologist comes in and educates you and says, this is the mouth, this is the throat, this is where food should go, this is where food shouldn't go, and you have this nice chart on the wall, and it's what we call a lateral view, so from the side, I assume. And then you're saying you're looking at the fees, and you're not seeing it as clearly as the chart that's described before? Well, what I'm saying is neither are useful. Oh, neither are useful. Okay. Neither are useful. The the two dimensional poster <clears throat> doesn't get into all the um, pieces working together. Got it. it. It's really really hard, you know, because you guys deal with it all the time. You've seen it. Mm -hmm. From from a patient perspective, the poster doesn't do any good, and the fees is looking down. You'll see the puddling. You don't see what's happening. Okay. So that's a one of the biggest benefits when I visited you guys, being able to watch myself on the video. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So let's talk about how we came to even know each other. So you had a stroke, and then you were treated for a while, if I understand, by um, a speech pathologist, maybe one, maybe two, before two. you found out about the NIH.gov and went online. So before you talk about coming, to going to the NIH website, which eventually routed you to our research study, can you talk a little bit about um, what you, in as vague as it might have been, what you think you are able to understand about your swallow, why that meant you had to be NPO, and what kind of treatments you recall um, undergoing, whatever they might have been, before you went to the NIH. I had, 
I had two, um, the inpatient and outpatient. Um, SLPs from inpatient. Um, I'm not sure they explained to me swallowing difficulties. Okay. And the exercises I did was the um, the sit-ups, the neck crunches. Uh, the Shakir is what we call that. We call that okay. Shakir. Yeah. Then um, I had the tool you blow into. It would measure your, um, you can adjust it. I still have it. EMSD, expiratory muscle strength training? Yes. Okay. The, the, um, EMST. Yeah, expiratory muscle strength training. So twice a year for three months while I was in, in the hospital, or probably two months, um, 60 days, I saw the SLP twice a day. Wow. Monday through Friday. And so... Is Raymond always with the neck crunches or the Sakira and the MST? So, Jim, just to be clear, when you say neck crunches, I want to be clear. Are you? Did you do it against resistance while sitting up, or no? Okay, you were no, laying, I was down. laying down. Okay, so that was the shape. And I'd raise it up to okay. where the chin would touch the chest. Got it. Okay, so I I can tell you this. Um, part of what they were probably going for there was. The, that maneuver is supposed to target the upper esophageal sphincter, which I know you now know a lot about. Um, mm -hmm. And they probably were giving you EMST because you said that you were frequently aspirating and they wanted to make sure you had an effective cough to ex expire um, anything that, that went into your trachea. That, that's what I'm guessing right now. Alicia, did you want to jump in? Yeah, it sounds... It sounds pretty typical. I mean, these are pretty common exercises that are prescribed for patients that have swallowing problems. Um, so these these aren't things that are extraneous or 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 seem odd. I think that these are are really commonly prescribed for people that have these types of issues. Um, and I think you know we could go off on a whole other tangent of trying to understand the exercises that are prescribed or the appropriate exercises or how are we tracking if they work. And I think that these are conversations that we have as speech pathologists is trying to trying to match the appropriate treatment with the appropriate diagnosis. But from a patient perspective, and I think, Jim, what I've learned from you is that that wait time is just really frustrating of wanting to you're the one spending the time doing these exercises and wanting to get back to a normal life and just the waiting game of trying to understand if what you're doing is effective or not when maybe nobody has the answers is, I mean, it just must feel like an eternity. Um, that's true. Uh, but I also think it comes down to what do they define insanity? Trying to, you know, do the same thing, expecting different results. Yep. And, um, yep. you know, for 60 days, you know, I, I was really just, the SLP just had me doing those exercises. You know, you take you take a look at the, the, the physical therapist, 
they were trying all kind of different, different, different um, techniques. You know, I I was in such bad shape that I couldn't walk. I lost a lot of weight. Um, you know, I went from 225 down to the lowest. Um, it was like 155. And, you know, so I was really struggling trying to keep weight on. Um, you know, so that was a little, a little bit frustrating. They do the fee study. You know, all of a sudden they, they tell me to swallow. Well, I haven't been swallowing for ever. You know, so, so me, how, do, how do you expect yeah. me to magically swallow? Okay, so I want to make sure I understand a few things because you've said a lot of really important things. One is when Alicia said it sounded like it's probably an eternity. When you first, I mean, you're already going into this like most patients where you don't expect that you're going to have swallowing problems after a stroke. People don't even know about swallowing problems. I assumed that before your stroke, you hadn't heard about dysphagia or swallowing problems as being a major outcome after a stroke. Is that about right? Correct. I had no knowledge what dysphagia was. Right. So there's the awareness factor and then you have the stroke and it's like, oh, it'll clear up. You know, after a stroke, these things happen. And then, mm -hmm. oh, it's the trach. It'll clear up after the trach. And then next thing you know, you're having 60, six, zero, is that, is that the correct? 60 days yes. with a, with doing exactly the same exercises for 60 days. And then they do another fees and they think that maybe you swallowed and you're like, how am I magically going to swallow now? Is that basically, that's that, is that what correct. you're Correct. I had two fees done in the hospital. So how did you feel that they, um, that they were, were your, were your, the people who um, conducted your assessment, were they okay by pushing you during the evaluations when they saw you aspirate? Were they like, hey, that's, that's okay. We can see what's happening. Or were they uh, less comfortable with it? They were probably less comfortable with the fee study. You can't really tell. All you can, from, from my take, when I, when I watched that I wasn't swallowing. <clears throat> That the um, the barium was was um, the liquid was pulling up on top of the, the uh, trach, on top of the sphincter. You know, there there was no um, <coughs> sorry, um, there was no squeezing of it to go down the hatch. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> yeah. The, so I, I would admit I was trying to sneak ice and water. I mean, I was, I was really desperate. Um, being NPO really, really did, hate to use the word suck, but it did. Yeah. Because there was no breakup. Because I don't think, I don't think the SLPs know, it's almost like, a, I don't want to be over dramatic, but it's almost like a death sentence. Wow. The um, you know, when you're in a hospital 90 days, there's no break. The meal time is, you know, a break in your day. It's how you define your day. Yeah. Well, mine were all run on long days because there was no meal service. Wow. There was no attempt for me to swallow. You know, you, you can't tell the, in, the inpatient, the MST, and, and the Secura, they weren't doing anything 
to help me swallow. Mm -hmm. The only time I was authorized to swallow was, you know, for the two teeth study. Okay, so you never you never had a video X-ray. You never had the MBS study this whole time. Um, modified barium study. I was outpatient, and kind of kind of the same. The techniques were different, but the outcome in this was the same. It was five months five. with the ECM connected to my throat. Five months with the what connected to your throat? Would be the ECM. Oh, ECM. Okay. Is that what you call the? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's so, the tool that was used. So an so outpatient. Five months, five, three days a week. Sorry, can you say that again? What was the frequency? Five months, uh, three days a week. Okay, and so your timeline went from inpatient, and then you went to five months outside, and at this point they're still recommending NPO because you've had moderate yeah. barium swallow studies and you're aspirating, and they did E-STEM. They didn't do, they, right away they did not do a uh, modified barium study. They finally did one. Okay. Okay. In my origin. Oh, that's interesting. So when you started outpatient, they probably got reports from the inpatient saying these are the patient's issues and this is what the patient has been doing. They switched to ESTIM. Um, I'm not sure what the physiologic rationale would be for that because at this point it sounds like your, um, you know, your, your swallowing mechanism wasn't clearly described to you, not that it wasn't in the notes clearly described to them, but as the patient, what probably makes it feel like an eternity. I love what you said about your days broken up by, by meals. And for you, it's just this one run, run on day where you're not eating at anything at all. We, we sort of take those things for granted. But importantly, you're obviously a um, good consumer of your health. You're intelligent. And if someone just gives you information, you can use it, especially if it's about your body, to understand what your situation is going to be. But it sounds like a lot of that information was not made clear to you, which is why you're not able to say, well, I did the chin crunches for a month for this problem in my in my neck, and I did Easton for that problem. Do you think that's fair? Yes, I think it's fair. I'm very correct. Yeah, I will, as an outpatient, um, it's probably about a month after I was home, and about a month as an outpatient, um, I felt a fellow swallow, a couple swallows. Because okay. I was feeling the sink, and I, I would try to force myself to drink fluids, waters, even though I'd spit it out. I mean, to, to myself, I wasn't going to swallow unless I practiced. And I remember I was all excited. I went to my SLP the next day, and they said it was impossible. I didn't do it. You went to your speech pathologist after you tried to swallow, you felt a swallow, and they told you it's impossible that you swallowed, and uh, but they didn't have any imaging to confirm that. Is that right? Correct. It makes me wonder what you were doing with the Eastim on. Were, were you supposed to be trying to swallow with the Eastim on? I mean, were you just sitting there? Yes, I'm just like sitting there. Swallowed? Just sitting there with the Eastim then. See, this or is... Or even for about towards the end, even a longer period, I'd be doing my physical uh, therapy with the e-stem still connected. 
Wow. So, oh, wow. That's interesting. So Leash, he's saying, uh, you said you were breaking up. So I just want to make sure you hear what we said that he, yeah. you heard all that. Yeah, I got all that. All right. What do you have to say? Yeah. So, so I think what's interesting is oh, <laughs> several things that are interesting about, you know, this whole story is I think that as a clinician, I'm going to make some bold statements here because <laughs> I just can't help myself. Do it. I just think that I think there's a, a couple of overall messages here, which is there's a tendency, I think, in our field to when you feel stuck in therapy with a patient to, for lack of a better term, to just throw shit at the wall to see what sticks. And I think that there's, you know, I, I think that as a clinician, I think that there's, it's benevolent and in, in really wanting to just try everything you got with your patient. But I also think that the flip side of that is that you can be doing real harm with patients if you're just, you know, let's try e-stim and just see what happens and let's throw it on. It can't hurt. I think that can be the mentality, but the reality is that it can hurt because after you've had a stroke, the real one thing that you have on your side is, is time after the injury. So it, there's this period of four to six months after a stroke where there is a certain level of spontaneous recovery that can occur. And in therapy and in rehab, it's best to take advantage of that time to really facilitate those improvements as much as possible. So if during that time, therapy is just sort of experimental and just seeing what happens, I think that that's a period where as a clinician, you need to take a step back and say, maybe there are other tools out there that I don't have access to. Maybe there are other approaches that I'm not aware of. Perhaps I need to consult with other professionals or um, you know, discuss this case amongst other people that may have a better idea of really how to approach this problem. Because what it sounds like to me, Jim, in your experience is that you were a challenging case. I don't think anybody would, would doubt that or argue that, but it just seems like there was a lot of let's just try and just see. And from your end, I think you were feeling feeling that as a patient of what's the real plan here? Like, what are we doing? Is this helping me? Because it just feels like we're just waiting to see what happens and, and hoping some miracle that the next time we, we check with imaging that things will be better. Uh, I agree. I, I think that's a big difference between like the physical therapist yeah. They they worked in that four to six months, you know, changed exercises up, and I saw massive improvements. Even even the three months, you know, I was an inpatient. You know, I, I still had to go home on a walker. That was a big deal. You know, moving from the wheelchair, I could take steps on my own. Yeah. You know, and that was all kind of different procedures. Um. And as an outpatient, I got, I mean, it was the same same aspect. Um, 
it was my research in the Botox, you know, it was my research on one of the brain stem or the brain manipulation. Um, you know, I wasn't getting help from, from the uh, SLPs. You weren't getting any help from the SLPs that you were working with, you mean, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Um, I brought these up and they, and um, they're taking the e-stem, you know, showed a lot, a lot of progress. Well, none of my research, you know, showed e-stem to be effective or ineffective. Yeah. It's kind of a wash. So it's true that the research on e-stem it shows some effects and then some it doesn't, and you know that can that can vary a lot because of the research mm -hmm. populations. But if I'm taking the research separately from your case, what strikes me is that you thought you swallowed, you brought that up. The person, the speech pathologist said that's impossible, but at this point you're continuing to do and pay for, and this person's getting a salary to put e-stim on you while you do physical therapy, and they think your swallow is impossible. So I'm trying to figure out what the plan was, was in that situation. Of course, we can't know right now, um, and obviously there may be some other things that were, that were um, you know, decisions that made sense. The issue for me is that I think patients should know what's going on. It could very well be that if we read the notes and spoke to the speech pathologist, everything would go, oh my God, that makes so much perfect sense. Yes, of course you made that decision. But isn't it fascinating that as somebody, again, who's a good consumer of, of um, the literature, you've gone to the research, you're melding your personal experience, what you know about your body, with the research, you're asking questions, you're making suggestions, you are clearly a motivated person, and you still can't really tie what you were doing with whether or not this actually could target your swallowing problem. So it sounds like, um, what, tell, tell me more about what I what you think there. I, I agree 100%. Um, you know, there was no goals. There, there was no communicated to me or course of action communicated to me. Um, there was no take home. Like homework. Mm -hmm. um, the um, and even um, the research I did do, knowing that I had you know, that's what led me to to questions about the Botox. And there was nobody in the triangle that performed that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I wanted to go see an EMT, so I was able to set up an appointment with the with the the, the big honcho EMT here. So he looked at me for about five, ten minutes um, and said I'd never swallow again. Maybe a laser procedure um, would get me, what did he term it? Um, um, pleasure swallowing. What's it called? He, he termed it as, as pleasure swallowing. Alicia, do you know what that is? Oh, ple ple pleasure swallowing. Oh, pleasure. pleasure swallowing. Oh, I'm sorry. So, I thought you said something else. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you said something else. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So fast forward a little bit. You're online. You're trying to find other ways to help yourself. And you go to NIH.gov and you see that there's a swallowing study 
um, that would take you nine hours to get to driving one way. Saw, right? Yeah, I saw there was about 70 some swallowing studies, but only two were stroke related in the United States. Okay. The one was in Boston, they wanted like six hours or six days after your stroke. And Jesus, I was barely alive. <laughs> no pass. I mean, don't, this was, um, I found your, your, then, then communicating with both, both your studies through the email, through the website. And the response probably was within six hours. I was surprised. I was, I was really used to being cast aside. By this time, I was already out of patient. You know, that was explained to me that they were making no progress. They could, just, could not justify it anymore to the insurance company. And so they kicked me to the curb, pretty much. And it was Alicia who replied to you, I think, right? Um, it was you. I think you're the one. Then you refer me to Alicia. Okay. All right. So I got the email. I referred you to, to Alicia, and we got you down. And, uh, Leash, do you want to go through what you remember about um, when we first saw his swallow on video fluoroscopy? Yeah. Um yeah, I think it was, I'm trying to reflect on, you know, my experience as as a clinician, you know, seeing the swallowing, which is, um, you know, I have to, I have to sympathize with cl clinicians that have um, worked with cases like you, Jim, before, because your, your swallow was severe. But I also, the, the one point was made up, you know, you as an SLP, you have to know your limits. Yeah, absolutely. Why, why do you keep yeah. getting a paycheck and you didn't really help this patient and you didn't go absolutely. outside your realm to ask? Yeah, I think that, I think that that's exactly what I was leading towards is, you know, what do you do? What do you suggest, and Anessa, maybe this is a question for you, just, you know, I'm, I'm curious your perspective on this is, I'm sure there's a lot of clinicians listening that have been in the situation where you, you have a patient like Jim, where you, you do imaging, you do some sort of evaluation, and you say, wow, I'm not really sure how to handle this. I'm not really sure what the next step is. And there's, there's two routes that you can take is what I alluded to earlier of, well, let's just try stuff. Not really sure exactly what to do, but let's just try things that are out there and see if it works. Or you need to take a step back and say, maybe this is out of my breadth of, of practice. And, and maybe, you know, I don't really know what to do with this case. And I what would you suggest to those clinicians that are in that situation? Well, the first thing, because I think it happens more commonly. This isn't an outlier case. I think there's a lot of situations where it's, I'm just not sure what to do with this patient. Right. Well, I think the first issue, and this is a uh, Jim, I think you, when you're, you said that the, your neurologist said that you were unlucky 
and that was because they didn't find the stroke early enough. I think, unfortunately, you were unlucky because you didn't get the right imaging for swallowing also well enough, and you didn't get a thorough enough evaluation. Here's why I say this. Alicia, this might answer your question as well. I think the problem started with not having video fluoroscopy in your case, because in your case, you want to see every possible thing. I think we, with your first day with us, we did both fees and video fluoroscopy because they both told us a lot of things. You had a lot of built-up secretions. We would not have seen that without fees. On the other hand, we needed to see what the larynx was or was not doing during the swallow, what the tongue was or was not doing, what the pharynx was or was not doing during the swallow. We couldn't have seen that without video fluoroscopy. So I think the issue is you probably didn't have the right kinds of imaging. And the second thing is that people, it seems like there weren't enough trials in the beginning to make sure we understood as much as possible about your swallow, testing all kinds of boluses, testing them multiple times, testing positions. And I remember when you came to our lab and we have a different circumstance than clinicals, than clinicians do. And I totally recognize that in our lab, we have time, we have funds, but in an ideal situation, I remember you were saying, you guys are really trying a lot of things. In the past, when they saw me aspirate, they freaked and shut down the the imaging. So I think that if we pull all those together, people will have a better plan for therapy because they'll have a lot of swallowing um, images to really make a better plan with. And, and then even if they can't figure it out, they can show these images to people that are thorough, which we did to our ENT at Florida to get you Botox. So my issue is starting out and knowing what the really knowing what the problem is was was probably lacking such that the therapy went in whatever direction it wanted to because there was really nothing to really base it on other than this guy's MPO and aspirates a lot. And the the, the, the videos um, showed me what was happening. I could see in like three almost three dimensional. Oh okay. You know I accept the bolus this is what you mean by aspirating, is pouring over. Okay. And, you know, and because I remember because you, you tried the different seating positions. So it came up to one seating position that, that I could, a little bit of swallow. And plus it was your attitude. Very positive. You up here, I was always faced with negative. You won't. You can't. You know, that doesn't help. Yeah. That only came from the, the, the SLPs. And my take is SLPs, your speech language pathologist. I think most of my um, SLPs that I worked with dealt more with the speech. Do more, know more about the speech. And, and the, um, the modified barium studies that were done here. Were, were simply x-rays. Okay. And even even the one I had done just a month ago, she recommend, recommended NPO on a write-up. You know, it had me freaking out. So, did Jim, I, okay, a, a couple things that I want to talk about how you started eating. So, one thing you said is that when you came to our lab, we generally seem to be positive. And I'm gonna tell you, and you said the speech pathologists you dealt with were not, they were negative and it doesn't help. And I want to, I want to 
um, perhaps propose a reason for that. I, it's not, I'm not excusing anybody. I'm just saying that when you are in a research world and you have a can-do attitude, you have all of the tools at your fingertips, you don't, time is not an issue, money is flowing, you have the expertise, you're excited. I wasn't excited to see how bad your swallow was, I'm not saying that, but I was excited by the idea that we might be able to impact you in some way, even if it didn't follow the, the, the route that we were after, we were so excited about learning about your case. I do think there is a little bit of angst and fear when one, a speech pathologist hears how severe a swallow is, two, can't see it in the moment, and three, has a patient who is saying, I want to get better, I want to get better. I think that there is some, some uh, negativity there because they don't want you to get too excited about what they might, may or may not be able to do. So I'm wondering if, if that's what happened there. And I agree with you. If you go to a clinician and they're less motivated than you and they're less positive than you, it's really hard when you go home without any um, homework or anything to think that, you know, it's, it's working. But at the end of the day, what was great was you came back for multiple visits. And I'll never forget when you said, so I went home and uh, I started eating. I'm eating mashed potatoes and chicken. And we were like, okay. What we didn't do is say, how dare you? Yes. This is a problem. You need to stop that. You're NPO. We said, okay, next visit, bring the chicken. We'll mix it with berry. We can't say it's going to taste good, but let's see where that food's going. Um, and I think the issue there, again, is when we have the tools at our fingertips, we have the knowledge, we're less afraid of, we understand the mechanism, so we're less afraid of aspiration. We are. We can allow you to get better. We're not afraid to let you get better by letting the mechanism try to swallow. Um, and I'm wondering if that's the big difference between the research study you experienced with us and the typical clinical scenario. Uh, Alicia, I don't know how you feel about if I answered your question or... Yeah, yeah, I think it's just, it's a difficult, complicated situation, and I think that it's good that we're talking about it in this forum with a patient, because a lot of times we talk about these issues amongst each other as clinicians, and it's a lot of, um, it's just one-sided from our end and our perspective, and it's just really refreshing to hear um you know, the perspective from the other side that's on the other end that's waiting for the right answers. And um, it's just, it's a, it's a very complicated situation. Imaging is definitely a limitation. Access to imaging is a limitation. Understanding of swallowing, people's fear of um, aspiration, um, all of those things put together means that sometimes the most well-meaning um, clinician, and I'm, it's not just well-meaning. Look, if you put me with my, or Alicia, with her extensive, extensive knowledge of swallowing in a room with a patient across a table, and you say, do swallowing therapy with that person, or can you eval this person, we, we're as limited as anybody else. We know mm -hmm. that we can't see anything, but we also have the knowledge to say, I can't do anything more than this. What we're not going to do is say, oh, I'm sure these problems are happening and tell you it's impossible you swallowed. That, you know, <laughs> that sounds a little bit um, like a bit of a downer. Um, so I, I want to I want to move forward, if you guys don't mind, to where you are now. So when you showed up in our in our lab, you were not taking food by mouth. You were doing maybe pleasure feedings here and there. And um, it took quite a while for you to swallow. And I. Uh, if anybody wants to see um, his swallow, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to add a link 
to um, the this podcast so you can see what the very first cir cir circumstance was and then sort of a fast forward to where you ended up where you were sipping from a cup showing us how when you're at home sometimes you can enjoy fluids um, and you were coughing in response to aspiration which you weren't doing before and Alicia and I don't claim any anything where we did anything magical with you we didn't figure out this crazy panacea that fixed everything that got you from barely taking anything with almost, you know, what 80% of the bolus that you would swallow was aspirated to very little. We don't, what we did is we allowed you to, you allowed your body to experience swallowing and giving you clues along the way to how is the safest way to do this, as opposed to we, our attitude was different, I think is what I'm trying to say. What do you think? I agree 100%. The attitude, the attitude was different. Um, I would drive, you know, eight hours. I'd drive down there, you know, to see where we were getting to. Um, you know, I could, I could measure because, you know, eating dinner, you know, I had my spit cup right there beside me. So it started like with, um, you know, one and a half, almost two cups. You know, say it's chicken breast mashed potatoes, some vegetables, you know, I was probably um, spitting out 50% of it. Yeah. Or at least, did I, did I jump in when you're going to, we're not in the same room, so I can't tell when you're about to say something. I know. I was just thinking we're so used to feeding off of each other's cues. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So, I mean, I just, I kind of want to hear a little bit more, Jim, about you know, where you are now, almost like kind of working backwards. I mean, we, we talked a, a pretty extensively about your beginning trajectory and what, you know, thinking back on all of those times that somebody told you to not eat. I mean, there's, I, I can't even imagine. It just sounds like so many times you were told, do not eat or drink anything. Incorrect. You know, the, um, well, you know, told the story back in July of 2016, I felt I could swallow. I was told it didn't happen, and they didn't, you know, it, it took me probably like three months to convince them to let me eat like two ice. But right uh, about a month ago, or two months ago, two months ago, I finally had the feeding tube removed. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I can eat and swallow without spitting, or very, very rare. The, um, but it, it does come down to position related. I can't eat and walk at the same time. Huh. It sounds like you know, chewing gum and walking, but honestly, if I try to uh, stand up, you know, I'm really, that's very, very difficult for me to swallow. Um, it takes it takes me a lot longer to eat sure. than a normal person. Yeah. So I really have to chew my food well. But I can still swallow like every morning I get up at my cereal. That's how I can judge. And then, dear God, I hope this doesn't go down without any spitting up. Because I remember how much I would spit up of the cereal milk. So I I wanted I wanna really make this point very clear. Jim, when you came to our lab, you had been NPO for over a year because of a brainstem stroke. And any 
group of people who understand what that means, they would say, this is his fate. This is all we all that's going to happen. And you went from that to having the tube removed and being able to maintain your weight with oh, increase my weight, increase your weight, increase your weight. My weight <laughs> is now is like 180. Uh huh. You went from 155. Now taking maximum uh, feedings through the tube. Yeah. Um, you know, the boost, the high, uh, high nutrition boost, six of those at 500 calories per. Yeah. I, I was still having a hard time maintaining weight. Uh -huh. So I got down to 155. So I jumped up to 180 by a month and a half after having the last Botox. Wow, that's great. And besides that, there's also the quality of life, right? I mean, I remember when you first went to your first barbecue was last summer, I checked in with you and you said, I'm going to go to a barbecue and eat in front of friends for the first time. Yes. Um, like I said, I don't want to be too dramatic, but the NPO is almost like a death sentence. It's not dramatic at all. I really think that that should be the last recourse. And not the, not the beginning. I work from home. I've said that before. You know, it has its benefits working from home, but also as a suffer from the, uh, dysphagia, you become a hermit. Hmm. And so all of a sudden, you know, I don't have the the, the social outs, outside, you know, social interactions of the office anymore. Then with dysphagia sitting in. You know, you don't want to, you can't eat. Your friends don't invite you out because hmm. you can't eat or drink. You know, to be able to sit there and, you know, just to have a beer is impossible. Yeah. You know, until until I came down to see you, you know, the, um, and what most people don't realize how much of our life revolves around food. Oh, yeah. And to have that taken away, all of a sudden it becomes clear. You wouldn't believe how many TV ads are food related. Wow. True. You know, when, they're, when you see the Coke, because it, it might bounce off you, when you see them pouring the ice cold Coca-Cola, all the fizzes, you know, when you're sitting there watching it as your NPO, Oh, God, I would just really love to have a Coke. Yeah. Um, hmm. And that's why, you know, you see me out at the store, you know, and, and plus you take away the food shopping. You know, everybody can, now you can do it Amazon, you can do Walmart, but, you know, I still, now I like to get out on my own and do my own food shopping. <laughs> You know, it allows me some interaction. You know, I just have to be careful of what I eat. Went to a Bloom Festival in Western North Carolina. So I don't know if you, you've seen the main the main lobster food trucks. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> They're very, very expensive. But lobster and I don't agree now. Oh, okay. Uh-oh, what happened? Because it, it's, it's very stringy. Oh. Uh, doesn't allow you to chew. Yeah. You know, let's learn. Yeah, lesson learned. I love that. The chocolate, like, I love chocolate. Mm-hmm. But um, right now, the chocolate are having a battle because it will mix with the phlegm. 
Ah, uh, I know that. That's true. Probably the milk bait. And so, like, right after Botox, you know, all the times I've had it, I've been able to eat chocolate. And it'd be really cool to have that SLP now be working, you know, instead of on my own. Um, even the different cookies. So you said it would be cool to have an SLP now. And you're saying that you are someone who has, you have a goal, you have something that you're physically working on in the same way that you had a PT that was working on a behavior. So if I understand what you're saying, before when you had an SLP, when you were absolutely not swallowing and you just had the Eastam on, you're, you know, sitting there, that didn't seem like the right time to have one. But now that you actually can swallow, it would be good to have somebody with expertise to sort of guide you through um, why some things are more difficult, why some things are not. And, yes. Yeah. Taking a step further, you know, have a plateau on my own. It'd be good to be able to work with somebody who, who you know, had the equipment that your, your lab had you know, okay, what exercises are there available now? Yeah. Well, we uh, offline, we can certainly um, talk more about who we might be able to connect you with. The great news about this podcast is you're going to have a lot of speech pathologists hearing your story and who might actually um, have some suggestions, might be in your area, who actually have um, their SLPs with the knowledge with the the right attitude, with the tools that you might be able to connect with um, to improve your um, your outlook, not just on the profession, but also especially on your swallowing problems. So, um, Lee, you know, in patient SLPs, I knew what she was working with. I have reached out to her. She's more interested. You know, I was working with Dr. Umberg, you know, because you're like her idol. Oh. <laughs> And um, she was more interested in, you know, what knowledge I could bring back, I could help her with, than what she would help me with. Oh, you know, but they were limited in inpatient. The fees was the most um, they could do for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I got a sense my outpatients, SLPs, were a little bit jealous because they thought I was putting more work into the physical therapy. Making leaps and bounds. Yeah, that's a common thing that speech pathologists sometimes feel like patients don't want to do speech pathology. They want to do OT and PT. And part of it sometimes is because really the problem is hidden even to the patient. In your case, you knew you had swallowing problems. There are some patients who have for cognitive issues or they're in denial or they simply cannot feel it. They don't know they have swallowing problems, so it's harder to get them to be motivated, but they know they can't walk. But truly, there I've heard and you know many speech pathologists say that patients want to do OT and PT, and I think it's because they understand what's going on. I, you know, I... You I mean, that gets back, gets back to the poster. You know, that doesn't show me anything. Yeah, yeah. That's what motivation, the, 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 the videos, show me what the problems were, and show me what the... When you're walking, when you're doing PT, you walk, you know you took a first step. Yeah. You know you took a second step the next day. The next day, you know, you know, each each I was progressing to where I was jogging. Yeah. You know, uh, you know that's so. You know, you you really have to ask yourself why don't these people want to work as hard? What what am I? You know, what is it a problem with me? 
And just to be clear, you're saying as a speech pathologist, if you're saying you got the sense that they were jealous, your speech pathologist should have been saying, why do my patients not work, not want to work as hard? What can I do to um, push that forward? And I suspect one thing is don't tell them they're never going to swallow again, or don't tell them it's impossible that they swallowed, or don't get your hopes up. I suspect that's that's probably a big one in your specific. That came from the doctor, the surgeon too. Yeah, and I'm not saying that all speech pathologists say that at all, but in your case, we're we're respecting your story, we're respecting respecting your perspective. We're not trying to say that because you had a negative experience that well, you just didn't meet the right SLP. Um, because your patient experience is really important. We're so thankful that you were willing to share that with us. And it's not just that. It's I mean, I would say that of all the patients that um, I've been involved with, your case is still the most salient in terms of speech pathologists recognizing that the role that they play in somebody's life can be potentially brilliant and amazing or devastating depending on a lot of circumstances. And you had kind of a range of experiences there. Alicia, did you want to chime in with any sort of closing comments or a summary of what you sort of think of, of Jim's uh, patient experience? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that we should point out that you alluded to a little bit, Jim, was how in physical therapy, and I hear this a lot, you know, we get compared to physical therapy in a lot of ways, is you, you were putting one foot in front of the other and you could see that progress. It was tangible, it was right in front of you. And I think that as speech pathologists, we can get jealous sometimes and say, well, we're dealing with muscles in the neck and you can't see inside the neck and it's really hard to treat. When For me, um, what was really profound was when we were doing um, video fluoroscopy with you and we were turning the, the images around so that you could see what was happening in your throat in maybe a similar way that you would with a physical therapist to be able to see in real time what was happening and we were able to point out those structures and muscles as you were trying different strategies and trying different maneuvers I just remember your response to that and I think that that's an opportunity that we all have as speech pathologists is to take advantage of letting the patient see and be involved in that process um, I think is really 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 valuable and I think from your experience Jim I will do that with my patients so much more frequently because it does seem to really make you a part of the whole process. You know, I played rugby, I played, I raced cars before before all this. Um, so I, I want to get the masculine stuff out there because it brought me to tears. If you remember, I was in tears. Yeah. yeah. I could watch, I could watch, and each set, because you knew what's successful. And SLPs, you play a really, really important part. More life and death, I think, than the physical therapist or occupational therapist. Don't forget, when I was in therapy, I, I had both inpatient and outpatient, it was all grouped together. I had an occupational therapist, I had a physical therapist, and I had an SLP. So that's why the comparisons, but it, like I said, it's a silent, it's a silent um, um, symptom. Yeah. 
So I will end with that because what you said, I think, is the, the best take home message, which is SLPs do play an important part when you have devastating dysphagia and it's this hidden problem, um, not being able to walk. You know, there are plenty of people with walkers and canes who are out there, mm -hmm. wheelchairs, recumbent bikes that can get around and get social and people accommodate them. In fact, they, the, you know, you have to accommodate um, individuals with disabilities in, the, in that way. Um, but swallowing is one of those things where you might be suffering silently. And the only person who you're going to who you think will understand your problem is the speech pathologist. And so even just giving hope, trying to stay positive, but realistic, um, and pragmatic and being honest about what you can and can't do probably could go a, a really long way in a patient with you where you're being encouraged to do things at home. You're being encouraged to look up other options as opposed to, well, that's impossible um, in your case um, that in the way that happened. But I think your ending point is they have the capacity to be the most important and influential person in the room when um, properly um when the service delivery is, is as, as good as possible. So thank you so much, Jim, for joining us. Um, this is the very first podcast of this type. Uh, I'm sure there are folks at um, NFOSD, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, um, where they have a lot of individuals with similar cases as yours that might be interested in hearing this, as well as clinicians and caregivers. Um, who are, are working with people who have similar issues and how they navigate those um, moments where they feel like quality of life is being diminished. So, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Leisha, any last words? No, I think this is great and we appreciate your time, Jim. I think that, you know, your story and your impact is um, just really profound for, for everybody. Um, I know I've certainly learned a lot working with you and it's changed my own practice. And I think that that's, um, you know, something that you may not realize on your end, just how many other patients are likely influencing by sharing your story and being just really vulnerable and really honest about it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, like I said, thank you. Thank you all for um, helping me out. Of course. Of course. Happy to be here for you. Alrighty, we'll be in touch. Keep keep you you message me every every now and again and email me. Let me know how things are going. Keep doing that. I'm really I'm happy to help as a friend. Okay, thank you. All right, bye bye.